Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along I'm pleased to welcome, as today's Spirit in Action, Abdisalam Adam. He's one of the featured speakers at April 9th's conference called Ways of Peace II, Nonviolence in the Islamic Tradition. It is sponsored by Friends for a Nonviolent World, so you can find info on their site, fnvw.org. Abdisalam is one of several hardworking Muslims who will be presenting at the conference, each from their area of expertise and experience. Abdisalam was born in Somalia and came to the USA in 1991. He's the director of the Dar al-Hijra Islamic Civic Center and works as a Somali cultural specialist with St. Paul Public Schools. He serves on the board of the African Relief Agency of Horn of Africa and another handful of organizations. So I'm honored that he made time to speak with me today. Abdisalam Adam joins us today by phone from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Abdisalam, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity. And I look forward to hearing you on April 9th in the Twin Cities. How did it come about that you got invited to speak at the Ways of Peace conference? Actually, the imam of my mosque, also called Dar al-Hijra Cultural Center in Minneapolis is a good friend of a professor at Minneapolis Community and Technical College. So Gail Deneker, who is one of the main organizers of this conference, talked to the professor and the imam told me that they wanted a speaker from the Muslim Somali community and he referred me to contact Gail and that was how I got involved. And just for our listeners who aren't aware of how a mosque is structured or, in general, how Islam works organizationally, what is the equivalent or the role of an imam? Yeah, the imam is like a pastor in, in the Christian church. His role is to lead the prayers, to give sermons, and also give advice and counseling. So it's, it's a person of authority trusted by the families and the community in general. It's not in the sense of being like highly ordained or being holy in a way. Most imams are regular, ordinary people. Some of them are highly educated and go through intensive education in Islam. And so there are variations depending on available where the community is located and so on. So basically we can say in this context is the religious leader in the community and congregation. And we're talking about the Twin Cities of Minnesota. How large is uh, the Islamic Center or the mosque? Are there multiple mosques? There just one mosque? How many people are associated with it? The Twin Cities Muslim community is relatively new in terms of growth of numbers. 
although there have been Muslims who have lived in Minnesota for a long time, but they have been small in number, the real increase came after the Somali immigrants came to the Twin Cities starting in 1993 after the civil war in Somalia and when the U.S. government started bringing Somali refugees. So currently there are about 120,000, I would say. Uh, more than 70% would be Somalis, and the others will consist primarily of people from South Asia, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Arabs from many parts of the Arab world, as well as African Americans. So these are the four main groups in the Twin Cities, and the Muslims in the U.S. in general. So if there are 120,000, do all of them attend just one mosque? No, actually, there are many mosques, and Islamic communities are very loosely affiliated. It's not like one ruler or one organization or one authority. A lot of it is grassroots work established by different people who have, you know, the heart for this work. So we have over, I would say, close to 30 mosques of varying sizes and varying populations all over the Twin Cities, and also greater Minnesota. There are also in places like Rochester, uh, Wilmer, then Cloud. There are Muslim communities in also some of these other towns as well. So in the Twin Cities alone, we have close to 30 mosques, and there will be others also in other cities. And usually in Islam also, we don't have membership system. The person will pray at any mosque that they could be close to when the time of the prayer comes. So we have, you could see all these Muslims from different parts of the world praying together. And also, some of them are large in number and sometimes could be more ethnic than others, depending on the location. So you could have a predominantly Somali mosque, for example, but it's not because of membership, it's just by design, because of the location and the people who come there are Somali and the language of the congregation of the sermons is Somali. So we have those cases like Arabic-speaking mosque or English-speaking mosque, and so that happens sometimes. You know, I figure you must speak quite a few different languages. I know that you've worked as a translator, Arabic, Somali, English. You are on the Speakers Bureau for the Dar al-Hijra Cultural Center. How big is the cultural center? Are there multiple cultural centers also in the Twin Cities area? I'm really very ignorant about all of this. The role of the mosque also has changed with the American context, and because it's grassroots, it's established by the community. So there are many mosques, there are many cultural centers. The one that I'm affiliated with, Dar al-Hijra, is located in a neighborhood called Cedar Riverside. It's on the south Minneapolis. There are high-rise buildings for those who have been to the Twin Cities in the West Bank near the University of Minnesota. And that's the neighborhood that many immigrants started when they came to the U.S. and to Minnesota. We've been told that the Norwegians started there. The Vietnamese also passed through that neighborhood, the Hmong. And now it's the turn of the Somalis. So it's a tower that are called Riverside Plaza. And many Somalis live there. So in that neighborhood, there are mosques, there are uh, stores, there are, uh, you know, lots of community activities. And as people settle down more and become financially more stable, they move to the suburbs and to other places. Our particular congregation is large because it's right in the towers where the large number of Somalis live. And we can say maybe about 200 people will attend a, a prayer, so five times. You know, so it could be about, we could say about maybe up to 500 people who come through our doors in a given day. 
Uh, some prayers are kind of very difficult time, like early in the morning before sunrise. So that would not have as high a number as, let's say, sunset or in the middle of the day. So depending on the time of the day, we, you know, people come through our doors. and it's A lot of people are the elders in the community. They, they don't need a car. They just walk from their homes to the mosque. Well, Abdi Salam, you were invited to speak at this conference, this Ways of Peace conference, about nonviolence in the Islamic tradition, in part because you've helped work with Somalis coming here in the wake of the war over there. Were you actually living in Somalia at the time when the war was going on? I know part of the time in your youth you spent in Nigeria, you've got degrees elsewhere. I mean, you've traveled around quite a bit. Were you there during the wars? No, actually, I was not there. I left Somalia quite young. I was born in the Somalia region in Ethiopia. This is also known as the Ogaden, people who know the Cold War when there was the Soviet Union and the United States were competing in Africa. Uh, this region is geographically in Ethiopia and ethnically Somali. And I was a nomad. I used to graze camels and cows and goats, which is the nomadic lifestyle of the Somali. We can say even 70% of the Somalis are nomadic to the present day. So my older brother came back to the family and he saw I was at school age. He convinced my father that I should go with him and he was working in Nigeria at the time. So I had elementary and high school in Nigeria, and after completing high school, I went to Saudi Arabia, learned Arabic, and started for my bachelor's degree in English as a second language, and then came to the United States in 1991. So basically, I've gone around, and but I've been in touch with Somalia when I was in Saudi Arabia in the 80s. I went there several times. And when the civil war started, actually, I was in Saudi Arabia, and it was still fresh when I came to the U.S. because the actual fall of central government happened in January 1991, and I came to the U.S. in August 1991. So it's about that time when central government felt that I came here. So I didn't go through the typical refugee experience of seeing war and trauma and violence. You know, the fact that I think you're, you said your father was working in Nigeria, for people who haven't been to Africa, maybe they have no idea of how far away that is. That's 1,500, 2,000 miles at least. How does it come that your father was working there? And it wasn't he wasn't just working with goats and sheep or something there. He must have been highly trained himself. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that Somalis are nomadic. Moving from place to place is very easy. So he left the family young also went to study in Saudi Arabia, and then so he specialized in Arabic. So he went to Nigeria to teach Arabic language. He was an Arabic language instructor in Nigeria at the time. So we do have that kind of uh, people crossing over for, you know, sometimes for adventure, sometimes for better life, and sometimes to, you know, want to use one's skills. So he's a language specialist, and after Nigeria, we went back to Saudi Arabia where he was educated and he was a professor at King Saud University in Riyadh. Let's talk a little bit about the part of the conference. It's nonviolence in the Islamic traditions. What's your first exposure to the idea of nonviolence? And I assume it's somehow relevant to your work with all of these refugees who've had to come from Somalia, flee from Somalia during the Civil War. Violence, nonviolence, Islamic tradition, and maybe just your family life. What's the relationship? 
Yeah, I think it's very important and it's really timely conference because of the voice of violence and extremism that has taken over many parts of the Muslim world and some extremist organizations that are using violence and terror as a weapon of political advancement of their causes. And sadly, they have hijacked the religion of Islam. So I feel as a Muslim, and I really give credit to the organizers of this conference, and I must say I'm really blessed sometimes to live in the U.S. and see the diversity of opinions and how, regardless of the pressure that we feel sometimes as Muslims, again, there are many allies, there are many friends, there are many people who reason and are able to separate between the extremists and the ordinary Muslims who are here to make a living. To me, as a Muslim, I feel it's a duty that we explain what the true teachings of Islam are, what the Quran says about violence, what the outcome of somebody who engages in violence is, and then again also to separate also the extremist views from the mainstream Muslim voices. And again, also seeing the destruction that the violence and war has brought to many parts of the Muslim world, like Somalia, for example, the prime example is We've been at war for over 20 years now. All we have seen is destruction. The city of Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia, is complete ruin. So many people have lost their lives. And then again, also extremists like those who attacked the United States in 2001. Also, it's another tragedy that has befallen the whole of humanity. And one thing that we need to understand is that terrorists or groups like Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab in Somalia do not care whether one is Muslim or Christian or Jew, they will attack, I mean, regardless of for their own purposes. So I think it, it makes sense that peace-loving, sensible people of the world come together, hold hands, do not give the extremist a voice, expose their ideology and their, you know, their, what they're doing is wrong by all human standards. So I think it's really relevant as Muslims, we need this perspective to be heard, and probably it will come later in our discussion, but again, the recent congressional hearings, um, the Muslims always feeling, you know, under pressure, under scrutiny, you know, being the victims of Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups, and so I think this gives us a forum to explain and for some Americans also to hear and, you know, listen to one another in a calm way. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about your work with the schools, but first, I want to start with your name, Abdi Salam. How does that translate into English? How would that, what's a reasonable equivalent in English of that name? Literally, it means servant of the peaceful God. So the first part of the name, Abdi, means servant of, it's a prefix. And the second part, Salam, means peace. And Peace is one of the attributes of God, and in Islam there are over 99 attributes of God. So we have the prefix abdi, and sometimes spelled abdul, A-B-D-U-L, and even in the Middle East, like for example in Egypt, it spells abdel, A-B-D-E-L. It all means the same. Basically, one who is subservient to God and who submits to the uh, mighty God. So that's what my name means. So I think in this context, I have a big responsibility to to live up to my name. Don't you think so? 
Well, I think you are doing that because you're doing that work with the school system that's so very, very important. Now, I'm not assuming, by the way, that you're a Quranic expert. I'm not assuming that you're highly trained in that area, but I'm pretty sure that each of us in our religions as we grow up, we receive some teachings. We witness how other people live their lives. We hear sermons. And so I'm wondering if you can give me a little bit of what you've learned just by growing up Muslim about peace and nonviolence. Since I'm Quaker for the last 30 years, I've heard a lot about peace as part of Quaker groups, though we don't have sermons or anything. My first 20 years on the planet were as a Catholic. I heard some things about peace, specifically from the lips of Jesus, but I didn't hear opposition to war. So I'm just kind of wondering how that was for you, what you've heard from Islamic community or from reading Quran or however else you receive this information. I would say, and, you know, at the same time, you know, when having this kind of discussion, sometimes, you know, I hear Americans or other people of other faiths, sometimes as Muslims tend to, you know, oversimplify things and say Islam is peace and everything is peace. There is aspects of also war and, you know, fighting and self-defense and, and so on. So in the teachings of Islam, it's highly emphasized, but again, there is also Muslims are allowed to engage also in, in war, for example, for defense or for somebody to defend themselves if their life is in danger. So I want, I want to be frank and be clear about that. I'm not saying that we are totally, you know, we submit and if somebody is hitting me or beating me that I will just submit and not do anything. But growing up as a Muslim, especially in Somalia, and and we have to understand that Islam also is a worldwide religion with 1.5 billion followers, um, cultures, geography, politics. There are a lot of socioeconomic factors that play a role. So we cannot say that Muslims also are all the same. There are huge differences, like the Muslims of Somalia versus Saudi Arabia versus Indonesia. So within that context, I will focus on the Somali experience. Traditionally, uh, about the age of five, a child's first step to education is to learn the Quran, the Islamic holy book, memorizing it literally, you know, little by little, they, they have to start with their parents. Sometimes they will have an instructor, a teacher come to their home. Sometimes they will join a, a school for Quran memorization. So even in the villages, we have, you know, wooden slates and use ink to write on them. Of course, Today, they use more modern means. So basically, we start from that age memorizing the Quran, and then when the time of school age comes, then we go to school. And even in the school in Somalia, Islamic education is in the system, so there's always a subject of Islamic studies. A lot of times, some people go another route of not the regular public schools, but through religious training. So they would have a teacher or a sheikh, that's the title for the Islamic, somebody who's knowledgeable in the religion, a sheikh or imam, will teach them about the faith. So they will start with simple books and the basic teachings of the faith, like the, you know, the six beliefs of Islam, like believe in God, believe in the angels, believe in the prophets, believe in books that God reveals, believe in the day of judgment or, or afterlife, and believe in divine faith. So these are the six articles of faith in Islam that a Muslim has to believe in, and then the five pillars, which is the declaration of faith, prayer five times a day, fasting in the month of Ramadan, giving charity to the poor, and annual pilgrimage to Mecca. 
And I do notice that many Americans heard about the five pillars more than the other six articles of faith. So I'm just kind of summarizing it briefly. So it's kind of step by step, then you know, when we finish the simple books, then the next level, and then the next level, and it continues. People spend lifetime, you know, just learning about this religion. So when it comes to Islamic tradition, the Quran is the most important for one to be knowledgeable about. And the Quran is in Arabic, by the way, and many Muslims memorize it without sometimes knowing the meaning of the words, because there's a belief that just by memorizing it and by saying it, there is blessing and there is reward for doing that. But again, there are others who learn Arabic and also you know, listen to interpretation of the Quran or what's called exegesis, and which is ex- explaining the meaning of the words of the Quran. So, so people go through that. And myself, I in Saudi Arabia when I was going to college, I as part of the college requirements, we did Islamic studies. Um, I studied also at the bachelor's level, not full degree, but very close to a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies. But a lot of it also comes through the mosques or the Islamic centers. Uh, there are always lessons going on on the weekends. Even here in the Twin Cities, many kids and many families go to the mosque for religious studies. And it's a tradition that remains with us wherever we are in the world, wherever we go. This is something very passionate and important for the Muslim individuals, those who are practicing and you know, conscious of uplifting their faith and being true to their faith. So it's a long journey. It never ends. Even as I am today, I'm still learning. So, you know, just to let you know a little bit about it. Yes, thank you for that explanation. Can you give me a little bit more flavor of, as you're growing up, just as an average individual, what they talk about peace or war? And just to give you a comparison, certainly growing up, I heard words from Jesus, you know, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, those kind of things. I also heard about a vengeful God uh, in what we have called the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, where God was going to strike people down, and that sometimes God told people to fight with other people. So that's part of how I was raised. What did you hear? Are there passages of the Quran that come to your mind right away when war and peace are brought up? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, the word Islam itself comes from Arabic root film, which means peace, surrender, or submit. The word Muslim, which is the followers of the religion of Islam, comes from the same root. The word Salam, which is the greeting of Muslims, also comes from that same root. So when Muslims are greeting each other every day, they say to one another, Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. And the other person will respond, and peace be upon you too. So this in itself shows you how important peace is, how important submission is. But at the same time, in Islam we are taught that in life there, is a, there are two sides. You know, there's good and evil. You know, there's peace and there's war. There is hell and there is heaven. So the point is, how do you maintain the balance? How do you, you know, between the two? As you said, God is just, God is peaceful. At the same time, God is stern also, and also for those who are not, you know, obeying or, you know, the sinners or people who don't follow, so there's punishment for them. So there are two sides to everything. So how do you strike the middle course? That's what the religion tries to teach. So when it comes to the teachings of Islam, the Quran is the primary source, and the second source is the sayings or the statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. 
in one oh, this is called hadith or the traditions of the Prophet. So in one of them he said, Shall I teach you what would make you love one another? And the companions of the Prophet said, Oh, tell us, you know, Prophet of God. And he said, Spread peace among you. Salam. You know, spread salam among you. So salam or, or peace in the sense of greeting one another continuously and all the time. Or being peaceful. And then on the other side, also Islam, uh, as I was saying, there's another side too. So it, it calls for self-defense or there's a word that we often hear about a lot called jihad, or in English people interpret it as holy war, and Muslims do not agree with that translation. The literal meaning of the word is to strive you know, to, for the best and to exert one's utmost effort. And then also there is jihad in the sense of self-defense or defense of the religion. So even in times of war, Islam calls for fairness and not to you know, destroy, you know, places of worship or plants or wells or, you know, people's livelihood. And there are clear rules that are to be followed. Unfortunately, today, we're not seeing that. And, you know, people using, you know, suicide bombings and, you know, the end justify the means, you know, doing anything to gain the objective. This is contrary to the teachings of Islam. So growing up, we used to hear about that, uh, being peaceful and being kind to the others. So from the name of the religion to the name of the followers to the greetings, I think this speaks volume of the place of peace in Islam. One more point I would like to add is the use of suicide bomb is a major sin in Islam. And according to the Quran, the person who resorts to that will be punished in the hereafter. And that's very clear in the faith. So people who use those means are really going against the teachings of their faith. And human life is sacred, trust, it does not belong to us, we are to keep it until its time comes and God takes it away from us. So that's the way that the Muslims will view the use of their body and their life to protect it, that they don't own it. So that also is very important, I think, that we should emphasize in light of the terrible, terrible tragedies that many Muslims are committing today. I am an immigrant. I am a stranger in this place Here but for the grace of God go I I am an immigrant I have left everything I own To everything I've known I say goodbye She said, give me your time Don't you know I'm weary? She said, give me your poor She's talking to me One of your huddled masses yearning to breathe free And I never have lost sight of What this journey has been for See how she lifts her lamp beside the golden door I am an Irishman When the famine put us to the test Away into the west like wild birds flying We put our backs to the wheel With a heart that always yearned for home We have made this place our own And about died trying She said, give me your time Don't you know I'm weary? When she said, give me your poor, she's talking to me. 
One of your huddled masses yearning to breathe free And I never have lost sight of what this journey has been for See how she lifts her lamp beside the golden Chinese, I have worked your mills, your yards, your mines. I have laid your railroad lines with my two good hands. I am a Chicano in your orchards and your fields. I have gathered in the yields for this hungry land. She said, Give me your tire, don't you know I'm weary? said, give me your poor, she's talking to me. One of your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And I never have lost sight of what this journey has been for. See how she lifts her lamp beside the golden door. forgotten that is true I am everything you knew I am your glory she said give me your tired don't you know we're weary and she said give me your poor she's talking to you and me we are the huddled masses yearning to breathe free and we never must lose sight of what this journey has been for As we lift her lamp beside the golden musical interlude with John McCutcheon's song, Immigrant, very apropos of today's topic and guest. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with Abdisalam Adam. He came to the U.S. in 1991 from Somalia. He actually has lived also in Nigeria and Saudi Arabia. He lived in the east of the United States before coming to the Twin Cities in 1996. 
He occupies a number of posts. He's very active. He is the board chair of the Islamic Civic Society of America, which operates the Dar al-Hijra Mosque in Minneapolis. He serves on the boards of the Islamic League of Somali Scholars in America, the Joint Religious Legislation Coalition, and other things. He's very busy, neighborhood house in St. Paul, and so I'm very impressed that he could make time to speak with us here today for Spirit in Action. I'm your host for Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Our website is Northern Spirit radio.org and please come to our site to see links to our guests to hear all of our programs from the last five and a half years and to please leave us comments we love hearing from you we want to know who's listening in which corner of the countries which programs you felt helpful and which ones you don't need to hear again we need to hear everything that you have to feed back to us as i said we're speaking with abdi salam adam and Abdi Salam, I was wondering, the last name Adam, in English, I associate that with, you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Is that where the family name comes from? Exactly, that's where it comes from. In Islam, Adam was the first human being God created and is the father of all the peoples of the world. So, in a sense, he's you and I's uh, father as well. As I just mentioned, you are active with the Dar al-Hijra Cultural Center, and one of the things that I know that the Cultural Center says about its purpose is that they demonstrate the compatibility between Islamic principles and the principles of democracy. So until 1991, you lived in Islamic societies, and then you came to the United States. What was the learning curve like for you? Because I think it's something that you must be passing on to the Somali refugees who are coming to the Twin Cities. Was it hard to adapt to the cultural approach of the United States? Yes, it, it, it did take time, but I think my life has become much more richer as I have interacted with people in the U.S. and even within the other Muslim communities. But what happens is for many Muslims, they come from communities that are generally homogeneous. I mean, they're kind of the same group. Somalia, for example, is the same religion, the same language, the same kind of physical uh, appearance, even the same school of thought within Sunni Islam. So somebody who comes from that context and sees everything in one way, coming to America and see the diversity of religions, the diversity of colors and complexions, diversity of ethnicity, is really powerful. So... In a sense, uh, in our part of the world, America is really viewed in two contrast ways. Some will see they adore America so much, and almost you know, everybody is kind of finding a way to get to America or to the U.S. And then other times, you'll see because of mainly the foreign policy or some of the military activities of the U.S., you see others who you know detest the country and kind of you you, you do see a hatred in them. But those are in minority, very small, I would say, in any Muslim country, whether Somalia, Saudi Arabia, all the places I've been to, that love for America and people fascinated by America and especially the influence of American corporate America in business and in entertainment is obvious in many parts of the Muslim world. So I did have that in mind when I was coming here and most of we kind of afraid for our faith. The one thing that many Muslims said, if they come to America or they go to a non-Muslim country, they will lose their faith. We were really surprised when we came here and we saw the number of Muslims, the number of institutions, the freedom of worship that they have. Believe it or not, there are some Muslim countries that 
Muslims cannot practice their faith as well or as freely as they do in the U.S. And classic example is Tunisia, a country that in the current uprising in the Middle East just deposed their dictator and hopefully there will be more religious freedom. Um, many Tunisian friends here in America, they used to tell me that you know, young men will become reason for being suspected of for being detained if they go to the mosque for the morning prayer, you know, the early morning prayer, for example, or if they grow beard. Many women could not keep their heads cut. Something similar to that was happening in Turkey. So we're really blessed, and I've come a long way to accept the, the diversity and the tolerance and saying everything one way. And so I've, I think I've come a long way, and in that sense, that's what I try to tell the Somali immigrants. We claim to be one, you know, homogeneous society yet. We've been fighting for 20 years. It's not just a matter of what you claim or what you follow, but how you live your principles. I think that's what really matters. It's not just claiming that we are Somali Muslim, yet just because we're from different clans or different tribes, we keep fighting. So I always use that as a reference. Just look at America. Just see the diversity. See the differences. What's there between us that keeps us fighting for so long? I mean, people listen sometimes, but I don't know. It, it will take time, and it takes time to really appreciate the, the tolerance. I think, so the key, I think, is the tolerance and to accept the other and to see the bigger picture. That's the key, I think. I wonder how tolerant Muslims from one country or from one area or one variety of Islam are of other Muslims of different varieties. Is there a major difference? For instance, you're working with Somali refugees coming to the Twin Cities area. How is their culture, how are their thoughts, how are their beliefs different than other Muslims coming to the Twin Cities area? Yeah, I think we will say, uh, generally speaking, the main divisions in the Muslim world when it comes to divisions will be the Sunni Shia. You, you hear that about a lot. And even that is not that deep. You know, basic principles are the same. They, you know, believe in God and the Prophet Muhammad is their prophet. So the Shia was a sect that broke away from the main Sunni Islam not long after the Prophet Muhammad passed away. And that division is based primarily, they believe that the leader of the Muslims or the greater Imam or, you know, the president of the Muslim or the Muslim nation, let's say it was one nation, now there are many countries, so it's not really applicable. But their belief was it should be from the progeny of the Prophet Muhammad and not somebody else. And the Sunni says anybody could be the leader and the best qualified and the most knowledgeable. So that divide kind of stands out. And, but in Somalia, we don't have Shia, so we, we didn't actually have much experience. And my own personal position is that we're not that far apart, so we're all Muslims. So in a way, the division should not be made as big as some others do. And there are some Muslims that who see the Shia even farther than the Christians sometimes, for example. You know, the level of enmity and as you see. So I, I don't subscribe to that. Here in the Twin Cities, there are mostly Sunni organizations. There are also Shia organizations. And we don't interact that much in some ways, but also there is no animosity. And sometimes in public events, both everybody comes. But in the Muslim world itself, there are some sects of within Islam that are a little bit stricter. They see themselves as the only right ones, that they are the ones who are the truth. And you know, those who even differ from them a little bit, even among Muslims, they would condemn, you know, in the same way that they would condemn their Christians or Jews or people of no faith. So in a way, there is that sometimes extremism, rigidity, narrow-mindedness, all this play a role in a person's perspective. 
I think education is the key. Traveling and discovering the world will be another way of people to kind of open up their eyes and lift up their eyes and see the bigger picture. So we do go through these struggles. There's Muslim to Muslim discrimination. There's Muslim to Muslim oppression You know, in many parts of the Muslim world. Otherwise, the most brutal regimes are in the Muslim world. So we are struggling socio-politically, and one of those people who are hopeful that something good might come out of the current revolutions are present in many parts of the Muslim world because the dictatorship and somebody's thinking and not giving people their rights in their own countries is not serving you know, the faith nor the well-being of the community. It's really undermining the prosperity of the Muslim nation in many parts of the world. I wonder, Abdi Salam, if you can delve into some of the cultural differences that make Somalis different from other nations. Again, keeping in mind, I have lived in West Africa, in Togo, for two years. I've traveled to Kenya and Rwanda, so I have an idea a little bit about Africa. And I know some things that are in common, but I know that some things are very different. What is something that is distinctly Somalian? that, you know, if you saw that, you say, okay, that person's from Somalia, even if you didn't hear him speak. From the practice, it's, it's kind of hard to know because, you know, Somalia was influenced also by other civilizations. For example, you know, it's on the Indian Ocean, and, you know, we had contact with the Egyptians, with the Indian, with the Persians, with, you know, with different civilizations. So there is a lot of contact with other civilizations. So it's hard to really pin down and know, you know, that person is, you know, a Somali from the practice. But generally speaking, the Somalis are kind of the nomadic nature, you know, the tendency to move from place to place, sense of freedom that they don't feel inferior to anybody. You know, they will, even those who are not educated, they, they will speak very confidently and, and, and feel proud of who they are and, you know, try to assert themselves. And we see that playing out in the Twin Cities. Like Somalis, if, if, they, want, if they need a job, they will go to anywhere. You know, they'll just go to a company, knock on the door, and fill the form. So there's no sense of holding back or fear or being discriminated against because we have not experienced it. And then when it comes to the religious differences, I think that's what your question was. Within Islam, there are four schools of thought. And what that means is, in early Islam, the scholars interpreted the faith, like they would look at the Quranic text. One scholar will understand it one way, another one will understand it in another way, so the four schools that developed out of that. So there are differences in the practice. So the same verse, this scholar will say this is what this means, another will say this is what this means, and out of that developed these schools of thought. So the Somalis are a school called Shafi'i school. Maybe if I, I should just say the names of the schools, uh, those who are maybe deeper, who know deeply about Islam. So Shafi'i is one of them. In Saudi Arabia and the Gulf state, it's called Hanbali. In Bangladesh and India, Pakistan, those areas called uh, Hanafi and in North Africa called Maliki. So these are four schools of... So there are differences in the practices there, and, and that's in the acts of worship, for example. So you could notice some of those differences. And sometimes Muslims spend time arguing that this is the right way, and they shouldn't do this, and they shouldn't do that. And so yeah, you can see that playing in any Muslim community where the different schools of thought come together. Well, let's talk a little bit about your work with the Twin Cities Schools. You work as a Somali cultural specialist with the Twin Cities Schools. What does that mean, and how does that get put into action? Basically, what that means is I'm the cultural liaison for the Somali community for St. Paul Public Schools. Basically, it's bridging understanding. On one side, 
teaching the Somali community about how the school system works, um, engaging the parents, uh, contacting them if there are issues that they you know, need to know, and then on the other side, teach the school system about the Somali community. So I will conduct workshops, uh, teacher training uh, workshops, uh, develop some ideas and lesson plans for curriculum. Um, so it's basically bridging understanding. And sometimes if principals, teachers have issues with Somali students or that could be faith-based misunderstanding or culture, or they will call me and I would mediate and try to resolve the, the, the issue that might be going on. You know, this is something I hadn't thought about. At what age is one assumed that they should be doing the praying five times a day? How early does that start? And does that apply to students that are in school? Yes. Many of the Islamic practices as a general practice start with puberty. Once the child attains the age of puberty, then they are required, for example, to fast, to wear the headscarf or the hijab. The prayer is a little bit different. Children are reminded to pray at the age of seven, kind of start telling them, and it's emphasized at the age of ten, and then after that it becomes required. So the prayer starts quite early, and, and the Muslims pray five times a day, and usually one of the prayers comes during the school day, and luckily, and one of the reasons why many Somalis chose Minnesota was the school system was accommodating. So they allow space for the students who want to do their prayer to, you know, have a space to perform it, so they're allowed, and sometimes education needs to happen, the teacher, how much time, usually it takes about 10 minutes, you know, the space and, you know, requirements, and I play that role of explaining to the teachers and to the school system, because sometimes one cannot rely on the students to teach, and sometimes they will take more time, and some of them may not really be true to the request, they may play around and not follow the rules. So so I do help in, in, with that also. And also, um, as part of the, when I was talking earlier about cultural presentations, these are the things that I tell the school staff. You know, the prayer is a, it's a huge one. Fasting in the month of Ramadan is another big one. Not including pork in the, in the food menu, if that is letting the Muslim students know about it. So some of these areas, the, the hijab, the headscarf, and what it means, and and sometimes some of the Somali or kids, they wear the flesh from kindergarten. Some of them, because they wanted to grow as a habit, they, their parents wanted to be a habit for them, so they, they wear it all the time, you know, just telling the teachers why that's the case. You know, something I hadn't thought about, I believe when you pray, you're supposed to face towards Mecca. Does that mean facing more or less east from where we are? It's more northeast, because it's a kind of symbol of uh, unity. So whatever the Muslim person is, they face the direction of Mecca. So it's northeast when we're here in, in, in Minnesota or in, in Midwest. In America in general, we face northeast. Okay. Well, one of the things that I assume is a consequence of people who've left Somalia, they're leaving because of the civil war that's been going on for the 20 years there. I assume there must be issues of trauma. Uh, people, I don't know exactly what kind of abuse or deprivation or other troubles people have been facing in Somalia, but I assume you have some role, Abdisalam, in trying to help the system deal with whatever consequences of coming from a war environment? 
Yes, that's right. And again, uh, one of the reasons uh, why the Somalis came to the Minnesota in large numbers is the welcoming environment. I must say in 1993, when the first Somali refugees came to the U.S., they were taken to different states. And the ones who came to Minnesota liked the reception they had, uh, especially accommodations from the school system, and also you know, dealing with these experiences of trauma. And the Minnesota educators and social services and health system was very good in listening, in kind of understanding and trying to find a solution to these issues as they came. So uh, this was more when the community was new and they were coming directly from fighting because many of them had witnessed, you know, close relatives killed and they themselves, you know, came close to, to death. And so they had symptoms of that, you know, people who are scared and dreaming and memories and sometimes not paying attention in class. And you could see many of these symptoms of post-traumatic syndrome. So I, I do play a role, you know, talk to them. A lot of them also speak healing in the faith. So they will go to the mosque and would want an imam or religious leader to pray for them and to ask or to help heal whatever does bother in them or war in them. So I did play a lot of role in bridging that trauma. So we tell the families or whoever that's going through these experiences, speak, you know, medical, modern health, while at the same time speaking the religious side as well. So both, they will complement each other. But there are some who would want to maybe just the faith one and would not would be reluctant to go to the doctors or take medicines. We tell them it's a matter of faith that God asks you to to help yourself and take the necessary means, and then pray also for healing. Well, there's a lot of good work to be done there, which is, of course, why I invited you for Spirit in Action. I do want to remind our listeners that Abdisalam Adam, will be speaking as part of a conference called Ways of Peace, Nonviolence in the Islamic Tradition. It's happening on April 9th, and it's at St. Thomas University in the Twin Cities area. The place you want to go to find information about it is the website of Friends for Nonviolent World. That is FNVW. Dot .org and there you can find the Ways of Peace conference. I appreciate so much the work you've done, Abdisalam, and especially that you took this time to speak with me in preparing for the conference. I'll look forward to hearing you at the conference. Thanks so much again for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark, and I'm really honored and really thank you for sharing and giving me the forum to speak to the to your listeners. And I think this is the way to go. The more we listen to one another and the more we learn from one another, the better it will be for our communities and for us and the American community and also for the new immigrants to integrate. When they feel welcomed and they are part of the system, it makes them also integrate more easily. So it's really important the work we are doing too. My guest again was Abdisalam Adam, one of the speakers at the upcoming April 9th Ways of Peace II Conference. Nonviolence in the Islamic Tradition. Find more info at fnvw.org, website of Friends for a Nonviolent World. We'll send you off for today's Spirit in Action with a bit of modern Somali music on the pains of war and hopes for peace.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world.